This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, December 20th, 2019, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. We have a really fun show for you guys today. We are doing our Federal Employee Reporter Roundtable Wrap-Up of 2019. We are delighted to have three guests in studio with us. First, let me introduce Jesse Burr, a senior reporter with Federal Times. Good morning, Jesse, and thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Next, we have Nicole Ogrisco, a reporter with Federal News Network. Nicole, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. And finally, we have Eric Wagner, a staff correspondent with GovExec. Eric, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Glad to be here. So before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners, LLC. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel, Man- Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. To learn more about that, visit them at ltcfeds.com today. So I want to start off this show. We're going to be wrapping up 2019, talking a little bit about the current events and things that are on our radar for 2020. But to start us off, um, in our last show, we talked about the SEA summit that was coming up then. Um, It's, you know, celebrating the presidential rank awards. And I know Nicole was just there this week. So, Nicole, why don't you give us, uh, you know, people heard about it beforehand. Tell us about what it was like. Well, on Tuesday, the Senior Executives Association recognized, I think it was 137 uh, senior executive service members. They won presidential rank awards, which is, I think, the highest uh, career honor for federal employees. Um, and I mean, it was really just a lot of great stories. I mean, we hear the stories of the Sammies earlier in the year, but these are senior executives who are really at the top of their game. Um, a lot of them steered really interesting research. They uh, made new discoveries. Someone discovered something like 2,500 new planets in another star system or something like that. Um, and I was actually really struck by the number of senior executives who were recognized for managing during the government shutdown. A lot of them found kind of innovative ways to communicate with their employees or found ways for their agency to keep going during the shutdown, which was the longest in U.S. history. So that was, that was I think, an interesting one for me, something that we don't typically hear about during that summit. Yeah, I went to the luncheon where they honored a ton of the awardees, and I I thought the same thing. It was really incredible just to see how these managers and leaders in the federal government really brought people together. Um, It was a great summit, and I know they do it every year. So for our listeners out there, I highly encourage you to look more into that. Some other current events that are on our radar right now, uh, last night, the Senate uh, passed the appropriations, the two bills. Um, I'd like to hear, you know, if one of you wants to give a little bit of an overview about what the current status of the appropriations process is, and we can talk a little bit about some of the, you know, federal workforce provisions that are in there and um, how they're going to be impacting the federal workforce as we hopefully get that signed and avert another government shutdown. So it looks Hopefully, uh, like the funding bills are on pretty stable footing at this point. Um, it seems that the agreements that were made uh, for each of these bills were bipartisan and uh, that everyone has kind of tacitly signed off that they've approved this. Um, it obviously passed through the House and Senate. So now it's just kind of waiting for signature on the president's desk, um, which normally I think would feel like a very safe place to be for funding. But of course, A very similar thing happened last year and caused a shutdown. Um, So it's really impossible to say whether definitively the government will be funded. Yeah, and that shutdown would kick in tonight at midnight. So that is the deadline for the president's signature. 
there are a lot of different provisions um, in the bill. One of them that I think is most exciting for federal employees is the pay raise. It's pretty historic, um, I believe, is the way Jesse described it in her article, because it's the biggest one in almost a decade, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, the original uh, House uh, bill for funding included this 3.1% pay raise, and uh, President Trump was somewhat hesitant to include the 0.5% that would be for locality pay. So that's the pay for employees that are living in expensive areas like Washington, D.C. Um, and so it seemed like the Senate had support for just the 2.6 base pay raise. Um, so the 3.1% increase was um, a nice surprise in the negotiations uh, that eventually worked out and is included in the final bill. Yeah, and that would bring them to pay parity with the military which um, is also significant. I know a lot of federal employee groups have been trying to do that for quite some time. Um, And then at the same time, that appropriations legislation, I believe, freezes the vice president and senior political appointees' pay, which was an issue of contention last year um, because people were concerned about some of the higher-up political elites receiving a raise when federal managers or federal employees didn't quite get quite as much. Um, The legislation also restricts some of the reorganizations that – have been brewing this year, which is pretty significant. Any other words on appropriations? I would just say on the issue of the federal pay raise, it's the second time in two years now, actually, that Congress has legislated the pay raise. Previously, that hadn't really happened. I mean, it was always an option, but typically we saw the president put out these alternative pay plans, and ultimately that's what went through. You know, it was pretty... It was a pretty traditional process. But, you know, last year with Congress coming back in, giving federal employees that 1.9 retroactive raise, this time Congress stepping away from the president's proposal and going with a 3.1 percent raise. That's another thing that I think federal employee groups have been advocating for is is for Congress to come in and really lay the land when it comes to federal pay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, uh, you know, I think part of the reason you're seeing Congress step in more often in these cases is that, you know, the Trump administration, you know, at least initially each of its years that it's put forth a budget has proposed a, a freeze for mm-hmm. employee pay. And, you know, that's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of lawmakers, especially when the economy is, you know, recovering and expanding. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think the other big piece of legislation that's going to impact federal employees that is also on uh, track to be signed by the president today is the NDAA. And there are a lot of uh, provisions in there that are going to have a big impact on federal employees. Do one of you guys want to provide a little bit of an overview about what that process looks like? Um, Sure. Um, For a long time, uh, there have been lawmakers uh, looking to secure uh, paid parental leave for federal employees. Currently, they can take leave without pay when you know they have a new child or adopt a child. Um, uh, under this uh, NDA provision, uh, federal employees get up to 12 weeks a year uh, for the purposes of uh, caring for a new child, whether it be one that is born or adopted or you know even just a foster. And I think it's important to note that this isn't the full provision that um, a lot of Democrats were hoping to get through. Uh, the original bills for this uh, also included leave to be able to take care of a sick relative or uh, take care of yourself. Um, and those parts were uh, kept out of the NDAA. So there's going to still be some push after this uh, once and if it gets signed um, to try to expand that to include more than just a new child in the family. Yeah, that's the difference between paid family leave versus paid parental leave, which is an important distinction I think a lot of people don't realize. And that's why uh, the lawmakers who have been pushing for family leave will still have some work to do. But this is definitely a step in the right direction in terms of kind of giving federal employees the paid leave that they do deserve. Um, Some of the other provisions in the NDAA include benefits in the event of a shutdown. Um, There was a lot of concern in the shutdown that employees would lose some of their insurance coverage. And so the NDAA has secured some protections against, uh, I believe, dental and vision are the two that they're protecting against. Um, Other fun things in the NDAA, they're doing the relocation tax fix, which I think is really important for particularly federal law enforcement who are relocating, uh, you know, from one area of the country to another. They 
was a problem over the last year where they were getting hit with some pretty big tax burdens, and the NDAA fixes that, as well as expanding some direct hiring authorities. Um, so there's some good things in there that we have to be optimistic about, I think. The one other, I think, big provision that I would mention in the NDAA is, I think, maybe for the first time this year, the most clear-cut uh, vision on what will happen with the Office of Personnel Management. And Congress came in and said pretty definitively, look, we don't want anyone transferring any statutory part of OPM to the General Services Administration, to the Office of Management and Budget, or the Executive Office of the President. And it also instructs OPM to contract with the National Academy of Public Administration to perform a, a study on OPM and its future. Yeah, I think we're going to talk a lot more about that when we get back from the break because we're going to take a look back at 2019 and reorganizations were certainly a big topic in 2019. So you guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We'll continue our discussion right after this quick break and a word from our sponsors. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are just diving into some of the big issues in 2019. I'm here with Jesse from Federal Times, Nicole from Federal News Network, and Eric from GovExec. So I think it's impossible to talk about 2019 without talking about the very historic and unfortunate government shutdown that started the year. Well, um, where to begin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, late December last year, um, Congress thought they had a deal to fund the government for the full year, but um, uh, the White House uh, was frustrated by the lack of funding for the proposed border wall, and um, thus began 35 days of uh, partial government shutdown, um, where you know, was not the entire federal government, but a lot of people were furloughed. A lot of other people were forced to work without pay. Yeah, I, I mean, I just felt feel like the like whole government, even though it was a partial government shutdown, it kind of felt like the whole government stopped for thirty five days because you had so many employees who were just so negatively impacted. I think it was one of the times uh, that the American public really felt the full scope of what a government shutdown means. Um, yeah. If the government shuts down for five days, um, obviously for the employees themselves, it impacts processes and whatnot, but a 35-day shutdown has significant impacts on the services that they provide to the public. And I know there was a bunch of concern about uh, whether people were going to get their tax returns on time and uh, whether certain, you know, travel was going to be safe because the funding wasn't there. Yeah, I think it was probably the first time, that, as you guys said, that the American people really saw the impact of a government shutdown. Um, I think it was actually Nicole who had written about some of, you know, in the last six years through three government shutdowns, it cost taxpayers $4 billion and we lost 57,000 years of productive time because of the last three government shutdowns over the course of six years. And that's just mind-blowing to me that we've, you know, allowed ourselves to get so pushed back um, as far in terms of productivity and just taxpayer waste because of these government shutdowns. Well, one thing that someone pointed out to me just the other day was that even though it seems like we're on track, knock on wood, I guess, to avoid a government shutdown this year, uh, agencies are still preparing because they have to. They have to sit down and look at their shutdown contingency plans, figure out who needs to be here, who doesn't, all in case something were to happen. 
at the end of today. And that takes time and that's lost productivity that you could, you know, be spending on something else that's probably more important. And that really impacts employee morale. Um, you know, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that came out recently found that about 10% of employees, uh, either partially or fully because of the shutdown, are looking for new jobs. Um, and I know that uh, the National Treasury Employees Union conducted a survey of its members and found that an even larger number are considering new employment because of the shutdown. So there's a lot of fear about job safety. Um, and if this keeps going to the last minute, even if shutdowns don't happen, I think that impacts the mindset of employees and whether or not they want to stay in their jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Feeling like this every year, it's a question of whether or not you're going to be able to have a paycheck come the holiday season. It's terrifying. And I think it's, you know, justifiable that it's a top concern of federal employees. You know, now after what they experienced last year and what they've experienced before, this is a huge issue. And I think it, the one benefit that came out of the shutdown is that the shutdown was clearly a losing issue for everyone involved. And I think this year, as we move toward the 2020 appropriations of process, there was a, a common feeling among both parties in Congress that they just didn't want that to happen again. And so I think that the one benefit of it is the American people saw the negative impact of a shutdown. I think lawmakers saw the negative impact of a shutdown and that we just don't want it to happen again. Yeah, I was especially struck with that NTEU survey the number of people who said they were planning now and rearranging finances, financially preparing for the prospect of a shutdown, and especially one over the holiday season, I think it was something like 72% or almost a quarter of the NTEU respondents said they were preparing in some way financially for the prospect of a shutdown. And that's pretty staggering when you think about that. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. Any final thoughts on the shutdown? What started our 2019? I do think it's uh, important to remember that, uh, you know, this shutdown was also a little bit different because the uh, administration tried to keep as many things running as possible. Even, you know, you know, Jesse was saying earlier how it was very apparent, you know, the scope of the federal government services. And that's despite efforts to... Uh, <clears throat> you know, bring people back in, um, you know, uh, there's, you know, currently a lawsuit uh, in part relating to the IRS recalling thousands of employees for the purpose of processing tax returns. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It was definitely different in that sense. And I think one of the big problems was that it hit right as training for tax season was coming. And so the IRS just kind of tried to push it along. But People don't like working without pay. Um, and so there were definitely concerns, and that is an ongoing lawsuit that I think it will be interesting to monitor um, over time because I think it will dramatically change how we deal with employees who are kind of forced to work without pay. So it's certainly an interesting issue. The other thing I would say about the shutdown is, and it's similar to what Nicole was saying about the SCA summit, it really showed the strength of the federal community and, you know, federal employees really willing to come together and help each other in a time of need. There were a lot of federal employee organizations that, you know, on a very short notice threw together scholarships, were sending visa cards to their members and stuff like that because they realized that this is a, it was a really hard time and a really long time to be working without pay. And so I think it does say something about the strength of the federal community and the resolve of the federal community to come together um, during that time. I think you also see a really interesting cycle of uh, employees donating to organizations through the combined federal campaign that they actually relied on um, during the shutdown when they didn't have paychecks. So there's sort of this giving back to the parts of the country that were trying to help them out during the shutdown. Yeah, absolutely. And you also saw some agencies themselves just come out and say, this is ridiculous. I, I think it was the Coast Guard, the Commandant, who mm. put out a video to the employees and service members who were impacted and just said, I don't know what to say, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry we're going through all of this. And, you know, the Coast Guard was the only military branch that was impacted by the shutdown. And I think sometimes people forget about that, that, yes, there was actually an aspect of the military that was, you know, um, impacted with this one. 
Yeah, I think that's a really great point and something that's really important to remember. Turning gears a little bit, uh, we had just mentioned before we went on break the reorganizations that have kind of overshadowed some of 2019. Uh, Most of them started to percolate in 2018, but 2019 was really when we saw the administration push to reorganize OPM, uh, merging it with GSA. We also saw some stuff at USDA and the Bureau of Land Management. So starting with the OPM-GSA merger, uh, anyone want to provide a nice little overview and where we're at now? Um, so this was, you know, something that was, you know, dates back to last year, even it was part of the president's management agenda. And, you know, it was pretty quiet about, you know, how exactly this would proceed until like around April or May when, uh, uh, the white house sent over proposed legislation to try to make this happen. And, uh, it kind of fell like a lead balloon, um, no one in Congress was really interested in the proposal. You know, uh, Democrats and federal employee groups, you know, were worried about um, the erosion of merit systems principles and protections for federal workers. And even Republicans who were more inclined to be on board, you know, they didn't see the evidence or the you know, analysis to really justify the, the move. Yeah, I think one of, for me, the craziest moments of 2019 in terms of the federal workforce was I went to the hearing um, with Margaret Weicker and some of the other people leading this effort in May. And I'll never forget, you know, Connolly holding up this piece of paper that says communication with Congress and stakeholders, and it's just a blank sheet of paper. And Margaret Weicker being like, oh, we have printer issues. And it's like, oh, there are a lot of issues here. Uh, so it's definitely, I, I, you know, I agree with what you said. The second they brought it before Congress with that business case, it just was not fleshed out enough. Um, there were a lot of concerns regarding the amount of evidence. And, you know, an IG report actually just came out earlier this month indicating that just more studies, more research needs to go into this before any real merger can be made. And I think that's why they included language in the NDA requiring uh, a study of the operations of OPM and what the best ways are to improvement. Because I think a lot of members of Congress have a belief that the administration did not do enough searching of alternatives and and figuring out okay if you are if your end state is to get OPM to be operating more efficiently and providing better services for employees, then what is the most optimum way to do it? Yeah, I would say. You know, the response from the Hill, I think, was interesting because OPM is certainly not everyone's favorite agency. And Congress, I would say, didn't fully review the move of the security clearances from OPM to DOD. They said, look, you know, they came in pretty bluntly and said, I don't think you're doing a great job at this. Let's give it to someone else. And they they did, I think, without much study or, or really public thought uh, around that one. But this is interesting because I think you see, you know, we heard from former OPM directors during Republican and Democratic administrations who came out against this. And at the same time, I mean, we've we've found in in conversations with some of the agency that even just the sheer preparation for the possibility of this merger has impacted morale in some parts of the agency and, and not at others. And I think you actually saw that in the most recent best places to work rankings, there were some pieces of OPM that really, um, I think, suffered because of the anxiety and the uncertainty with the merger. Yeah, I agree. And I and I think part of what you hit on is that there really is bipartisan concern here, because I don't think anyone thinks that OPM is perfect and it works really well currently. But with the security clearance move perhaps not being as well thought out as it could have been, and then uh, you were kind of put in a crisis situation where OPM went from bad to worse very quickly, and there just needed to be more thought and study put into whether or not this move was necessarily the best move. And the understanding that something needs to to change in order for OPM to really be able to do their job. 
it's also, I think, just an issue of, of trust and intentions. Uh, yeah. This administration mm-hmm. has definitely been very active in trying to restrict federal employee groups and uh, restrict some of the uh, workplace flexibilities that agencies offer. And so there's a feeling of maliciousness mm-hmm. that, whether true or not, um, simply pervades this discussion. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think there's a suspiciousness also because, you know, uh, Mick Mulvaney was OMB director at the time, and he's a big, less government guy. And so there's a, you know, especially when there was no, you know, due diligence that uh, they could hand Congress and say, you know, this is why this needs to happen. You know, there's there's real concern that, you know, they were looking to, you know, find an agency to, you know, kind of cast off yeah. and reverse engineer from there. No, I, and I, I definitely think that that feeling of distrust, uh, you know, has been a huge problem, not just with the OPM-GSA merger, but also with the reorganization of the USDA, the Agriculture Department. Uh, you know, the Trump administration announced in 2018 and then really formalized in 2019 that they wanted to move two of the research agencies out of Washington, D.C. And for a lot of employees, the obvious question is, why? Um, why are we doing this? But uh, the Trump administration justified it with, you know, wanting those research agencies to be closer to the people they impact. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate over whether or not that's the real reason. Um, but it's definitely had an impact on the employees in these agencies. I think we've really seen. And so I'm curious about one of your, some of your thoughts are on there. I think one of the big problems is that these employees aren't interfacing with farmers. And so a lot of them kind of wondered, like, why are you taking us away from the center of lawmaking and interacting with other agency leadership that our job mostly entails um, just to kind of say that you drained the swamp, so to speak? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, the Economic Research Service, one of the two agencies, you know, they primarily deal with other economists in D.C., you know, at other agencies. Um, And, you know, the National Institute for Food and Agriculture, one of their big things is uh, grants. They provide grants to land-grant universities. And, you know, a lot of those universities have people in this area to help them with that. You know, that's how these these connections are in D.C. Yeah. For me, it was, frankly, staggering in some situations – the number of employees who left and mm-hmm. USDA is still, I think, struggling to recruit back some of that capacity. You know, in ERS and, and NIFA, you know, they can see rates by sometimes almost a half to, in some cases, over 60, nearing 70 percent at, at some points during this whole relocation. And, you know, when USDA announced that they would be moving these agencies to Kansas City, they held an event, uh, their auditorium in D.C. And I had never seen anything like this before, seeing, you know, economists, professionals, people at some of the higher ends of the GS uh, scheduled there stand up and turn their backs to Secretary Purdue in kind of defiance of this. And I think it shows that, you know, some of these professionals, they really um, they valued their work here, you know, at the agency in D.C. And, you know, they weren't they weren't happy about it. They felt like they weren't given um you know, the right amount of say and and context uh, around the move. I also think that there's uh, a little bit of conflict of interest that goes on here. Um, I think a lot of members of Congress look at D.C. and see the economic power center that it is, um, and they want some of that economic prosperity for their own districts. And when uh, the administration says we're going to move this place X, Y, and Z, well, the, the congressmen who represent that area want those positions for their constituents, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the jobs actually work in those locations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think it's important to remember that 85% of the federal right. workforce is already outside of D.C. Right. And so I think the kind of drain the swamp means let's get people out of D.C. narrative sometimes ignores the reality, which is most a clear, vast, overwhelming majority of the federal government is already outside of D.C., and I think uh, the administration could be a bit more strategic in, you know, if they really want to move agencies out of D.C., 
let's you know be more strategic and focus on who we're moving where. We are right up against our second break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some agency reorganizations. We'll finish it up with the Bureau of Land Management. Once again, this is Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I am here with Jesse Burr, Nicola Grisco, and Eric Wagner talking about some of the important issues from 2019 for federal employees. We have talked about some of the crazy reorganizations that have happened, and I wanted to just wrap that up nicely with the Bureau of Land Management's move to Grand Junction, Colorado, although that move seems to be put on the brakes a little bit in our most recent appropriations legislation. Uh, what are some of the things that kind of happened in this situation? And, and I'm curious about what you guys think of it compared to the USDA moves. Um, well, you know, it's a little bit different in a couple of uh, different respects. Um, one, this was a, a move that seemed to be, you know, one of the big things about the USDA move was that they were very clearly rushing to get it in before the end of the fiscal year so that Congress couldn't block it in appropriations, which they succeeded at. Um, um, the BLM move, you know, had a more reasonable timetable. But uh, on the other hand, um, most of that agency is already out in the field. You know, mm-hmm. I think the case was even harder to make. And that's why you saw Congress, you know, block funding for it. And you also saw USDA announce first, we'd like to move you to an undisclosed location, which we will figure out over the next year. And then, so employees at ERS and NIFA, you know, sat there for eight or 10 months or something like that. Maybe it was almost a full year waiting to find out where they would move. And then USDA came in and said, we would like to move you to Kansas City. You have 30 days to make the decision. Yep. With Interior, they announced the re- – I think there was a sense that there would be a relocation involved. The department is trying to reorganize in several other ways. Uh, but they came in and said, we're relocating these employees. You will be moving to Grand Junction or, in some cases, to other states uh, out west, and you have 30 days to decide. So it was a little bit of a different timeline, a different a different sequence of events but I think still disconcerting for some of the employees who have to make this decision about whether or not they'll move. Yeah, and I think Congress's response has been kind of aligned with what you're saying. Like They've acknowledged that this has been more thought through than some of the other reorganizations, and they've basically just asked for monthly briefings about why they're picking this decision, what it's how it's going to impact the employees. And I think it's kind of comes back to Congress's Focus a little bit more this year on what is the evidence behind this? What is the research? I will say that with this move, I think Congress had a lot of questions about sort of the cost-benefit analysis that the agency had done because uh, some of the rationale was, oh, well, it's so much cheaper to have an office in Grand Junction than it is in Washington, D.C. At the same time, um, what a lot of members of Congress brought up is the fact that, you know, Washington, D.C. has three airports within close Mm -hmm. distance and uh, it's fairly cheap to get flights to a lot of locations. They're not so sure that that 
kind of pricing works out in Grand Junction? And are they going to end up spending more to send their employees back to D.C. to do reports before Congress and all that kind of stuff and, and make it a moot point? And again, you know, we saw what happened with the USDA moves. You know, a majority of the employees in each agency said, no, I'm not going to move. And, you know, it's it stands to reason that the same is true for BLM. And so you, you have to account for recruiting a whole batch of replacement employees. Which Yeah, recruiting, hiring, training. Those are all things that I think needed to be accounting for as well. And I think speaking on, you know, kind of switching gears a little bit, but on the topic of employee engagement, um, one of the big issues that I think has kind of come forward this year is the battle between Trump's executive orders and the labor groups um, and federal employee groups that have been very cautious about their implementation. Uh, It's just in the last few months that Trump has gotten the go-ahead and OPM has pushed agencies to implement these executive orders. Yeah, this is a this was the story that I think just wouldn't end in 2019, although it seems as if we've come to a bit of a conclusion um, in that there's been, you know, a final court decision uh, allowing the Trump administration to implement all pieces of these executive orders on official time. Uh, removing employees, and then um, it was the collective bargaining, just how the agencies interact with some of these unions. Um, I think we've heard, I think we've all heard from the unions that said that implementation has really been scattered across different agencies, depends on, you know, who you represent, you know, where. Um, But at the same time, we did see some patterns emerge where unions and agencies would go to the bargaining table Maybe they talked for a few days about even just ground rules or maybe one proposal. And then the agency said, well, it looks like we can't agree. We need to go to the federal service impasses panel. That panel is made up of presidentially appointed members who largely have a pretty divisive stance, I I would say, you know, not in favor of, uh, you know, federal unions. And, you know, we're starting to see some of the decisions from the impasse panel essentially allowing agencies to move forward with a lot of the proposals that they wanted to in the first place. But I actually think uh, we might see this issue rise again in 2020. Oh, yeah. um, Because we didn't actually get a definitive court ruling on whether or not these orders are superseding the rule of Congress. The courts just said that that was not the correct avenue for pursuing the case. And so I think uh, there's a very strong chance that the unions will... uh, take the issue to the federal services impasse panel and then eventually through that avenue take it back into the court system um, because the uh, appeals court did say that was an avenue that they could legally pursue. Uh, Right. Yeah, they have to go through the uh, Federal Labor Relations Authority, but uh, it's a really complex process right now specifically because, you know, the Trump administration still doesn't have this uh, general counsel at the agency who is supposed to, you know, bring complaints that they've investigated to the full board. So what they really have to do now is uh, this complex process where you file an internal agency grievance, which goes to an arbitrator. And in that uh, uh, process, you have to allege an unfair labor practice. And then that arbitrator uh, issues a decision, which then goes straight up the chain it, <laughs> to get around the general counsel. It's it's a longer process. Yeah, yeah, and I think to Jesse's point, no, there this isn't necessarily final and and decided. But I would say that if you ask federal unions what the quickest path to resolving some of these issues might be, it would be putting a new president in the White House. Very and true. You know, if they do try to bring these back to the courts, I think that would take a long time, whether or yeah. not we we have a different president. I mean, that remains to be seen. And and some of these uh, agencies, collective bargaining agreements that they're trying to push through haven't succeeded. Right. Um, you know, you've got uh, the SSA collective bargaining agreements have had kind of mixed responses. Um, I think the Federal Services and Pass Panel is holding them to uh, a certain standard of proof that telework is or isn't having an impact on uh, their productivity before they're allowed to cut it in their collective bargaining agreements. 
I think specifically the panel might actually be responding to what Social Security is doing as well. You know, yeah. um, there were, you know, in this situation, there are two different unions that represent two different parts of the agency. And for one of the unions, uh, CBAs, uh, the impasse panel said, you know, it makes sense to have uh, give management flexibility to change the program. But as soon as that contract was implemented, they announced we're ending the program altogether. Yep. And then two or three weeks later, the the second contract came through and, you know, the management tried to get the same language in. And the FSIP said, you know, no, I don't, we don't see the uh, evidence there. Um, you know, they're not explicit, but, you know, the change in tactics uh, and result seems to suggest that the panel was paying attention to, you know, what Social Security was doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of lawmakers have recently clocked into that issue as well at Social Security. And um, and it's going to be a major issue in 2020, uh, kind of inevitably. We are up against our final break. When we return, we will wrap up our discussion and talk a little bit about 2020. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are entering our last segment of our last show of the year, last show of the decade. I'm very excited to be here with my good friends, Jesse, Nicole, and Eric, discussing some of the things that have been going on in 2019 and 2020. The kind of last note I want to give on 2019 um, is something that, you know, I think no matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on everyone in the federal community kind of felt this equally and that was the passing of elijah cummings who was the chairman of the oversight committee that dealt primarily with government affairs issues and we have ushered in a new oversight chair the first female who has ever been oversight chair carol maloney and i'm just curious about what you guys Kind of think that passing meant for the federal community. Um, Cummings was known for being kind of a bipartisan hero, and so I'm curious about some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, he was a, a titan in this space. Um, I think he had a lot of respect, uh, not only for his bipartisanship, but also for his past advocacy. Um, and I think a lot of members of Congress just saw him as like a very um, genuine and respectable person, um, and and having him gone from chairing oversight, I think, uh, definitely makes it harder on them. Yeah, um, you know, one thing about uh, Chairman Cummings was when when he was chairman of that committee, there was always a pretty hard focus on federal employee issues, even though the oversight committee kind of can playing whatever pool it wants across the government. Um, And, you know, that's not something you always saw with other chairs. So uh, it is interesting to see if uh, uh, Chairwoman Maloney will continue that. Yeah, he definitely understood, I think, deeply um, federal employee issues. He represented many federal employees in Baltimore. Um, And I think when he passed away, I remember asking the National Treasury Employees Union, you know, was there something that stood out to you about him? And they pointed to a speech that he gave a couple years ago at one of their legislative conferences. And the union said, like, look, our members still talk about this speech is something they remember. He said to them, I have your back. And I I think that's something that the, the workforce remembers about him. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, he was a real advocate for federal employees. And I think that that is something that um, will be deeply missed, but I'm also really excited to see 
Congresswoman Maloney does with the committee. Um, and she she year. does have a track record of pursuing federal yep. employee mm-hmm. issues. She was one of the big uh, people behind the uh, paid family leave push. Yeah, and I think especially because, you know, we've only achieved part of that. I could definitely see her bringing it up again and trying to make it a major issue codified in legislation. So I think it'll definitely uh, – her leadership will be very interesting to watch and very fun to watch. Um, I want to take a look ahead at 2020. Um, The first thing I just kind of wanted to bring up was the presidential transition because that's something that's going to be important – you know, obviously going in 2020 and 2021, the appropriations legislation has already drafted uh, $9.2 million for GSA in handling this. And I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts about that process. Well, um, you know, I think we've always heard from past experts who have maybe managed transitions previously that the planning needs to start early it doesn't matter whether or not, you know, you have the incumbent coming in again or if you have a, a brand new person with brand new people um, coming in to manage the White House, that the transition planning need needs to happen regardless. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see whether or not the Trump administration uh, is mindful of that, that, you know, planning needs to happen regardless of what happens, whether or not they think, you know, we'll be here or you know, and we don't need to plan. I, I think it'll be interesting to see in the future. Um, it is. Uh, I mean, I don't, I'm. You know, it'll probably also depend by on individual agencies and mm-hmm. who's in leadership at those agencies. But um, it, I think it's good to think back to 2016, and um, there was a certain level of disorganization. Uh, among the Trump team and, you know, they didn't really plan it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And I think I will say that in 2016, uh, the Obama side of things uh, had a bit of an advantage in just that they knew they were going to be handing the reins over to someone. Definitely. Um, mm-hmm. So there was the definitive like we are having to transition. So we're planning exactly for that. Um we don't really know how much of an effort the Trump team is going to make in planning for the contingency that he loses and they have to hand the reins over to a new president. Yeah, and plus I think the Obama team had the the uh, experience with the, the Bush-Obama transition, which I think transition experts always say was you know, very well organized, thought out. They always laud that transition as, as one of the better ones, and so they, they had that experience to draw on. Uh, when they were kind of handing over the reins to the Trump team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we talk a little bit more about 2020, I, I, you know, a common theme that we always say is you really never know what's going to happen in the next year. It's always kind of a toss-up. So I thought it would be fun for us to kind of make a little bit of, you know, non-binding but educated guesses about what is going on, what is going to happen in 2020. And I think there are a lot of fun things that have always been true over time that we can kind of just throw around ideas about. Um, You know, every administration loses cabinet members every year. I'm curious if you guys had to guess what the next agency to see a, a major change in leadership is, what you think it would be. Um, I'll throw my hat in the ring for... Department of Education. Um, Mm. I think there's a history of a number of the uh, members of Trump's cabinet who have left um, under less than auspicious circumstances have had a a long track record of their inspector general investigating them, there being a number of scandals about their behavior. And I think you're seeing similar trends with Betsy DeVos in the way she's handled uh, student loan issues and the fact that um, there was issues of you know, intervening in IG investigations and stuff that I think is keeping some not so positive attention on her. That's right. She she recently was held in contempt of court uh, over one of these issues. So, I'll I'll say I think there are some people who will just stick around until the end, and I think one of them is Sonny Purdue. Yeah, and I think Ben <laughs> I Carson too. Ben Carson, he's I think been here is going to slip yeah. through under the radar until the very end, whether. I'm not saying he'll be there for eight years if we do have a, an eight-year uh, Trump administration, but I think he'll he'll go 
go on quietly. Yeah, I think he's been kind of under the radar for a while and is a close friend of Trump's. I think also certain agencies have the advantage of their mission not being a priority policy-wise for the administration, Mm -hmm. um, and therefore the actions that they take don't have these far-reaching consequences for the president. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I look at, like, immigration and DHS. We've seen a lot of turnover as opposed to, you know— HUD, which has been pretty consistent. So I think the level of priority for the president definitely has an impact there. There have been a lot of rumors um, around the federal community that Pompeo might be running for a Senate seat in Kansas. And I'm curious if you if that happened, uh, what do you guys see happening with the State Department? Do you guys have any guesses of someone else would take over? Do you think, I mean, I know Pompeo is also a good friend of Trump. Uh, Do you see him staying in that role? It's hard to say. I mean, um, there's the balancing of priorities of who Trump is going to want in his cabinet versus trying to get allies running for the Senate and potentially keep the Senate in his favor. Um, Since, you know, we've already had two uh, secretaries of state, it is a little bit difficult to say where the administration might go next. Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. <laughs> it is a important position that has had a lot of movement, and so I could I could definitely see wanting to keep it more stable versus having the ally in the Senate. You know, if he goes, I think Trump would be likely to nominate someone from Congress. Hmm. Um, you know, he, he's pretty distrustful of um, a lot of the rank and file at state. So I, I can't imagine them pulling one of the deputies. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, um, you know, we talked a little bit about the Federal view, federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, best place to work. If y'all had to guess the best place to, what the best place to work is going to be in 2020, uh, what are your thoughts? I have a feeling they're all close to the same. <laughs> It's always NASA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I think NASA uh, has a clear advantage for multiple reasons, but uh, I mentioned this before we turn on the microphones, but someone who works there said, who has worked at many other agencies in the past, compared it to the Disney world of the federal workforce. You know, yeah. any idea that he has about an initiative to build unity or team working always goes through because they embrace it there. Um, And so I think we'll continue to see that. Okay, for the last thing, we're in our last minute of the show. I wanted you guys to kind of go around and say your 2020 federal workforce resolution. What is something you would like to see happen in the federal workforce in 2020? I will say mine is probably the switch from paid parental leave to paid family leave. I think that would be really important. I would love to see that happen in 2020. I think I would love to see, I know really early on um, with different OPM leadership, there was talk about trying to come to the table with the unions and um, come to some real agreements and that sort of died down. So I would, I think I would hope to see with the new OPM director, Dale Cabanas, uh, see if there's going to be some some real sit downs to talk about policy. Mm-hmm. I'd like an FLRA general counsel. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> On that same vein, I'll see an MSP. I'll say an MSPB quorum. That's Absolutely, been going strong for nearly three years now. Could not agree more, guys. On that note, we have a lot to look forward to in 2020. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, and thank all of you for joining us on Fed Talk. Have a great weekend and happy holidays. <laughs>